That's good singing. Trust your heart is thrilled at the wonderful work of Christ and what He has done for you. I invite you to turn in the Word of God this morning to Song of Solomon, chapter 6. Song of Solomon, chapter 6. It's been a practice now for some time to turn our attention to the Song of Solomon when we observe the Lord's table. So for those that may be new here or visiting, this is what we've been doing and using the Lord's, using this book to help us prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. The Lord's table requires preparation, requires the preparation of our own souls. We are not to come to it glibly or flippantly. We are to come recognizing how much we need Christ. And so it is a time of reflection upon our own sinfulness and sinnership, our need for the redemptive work of Christ, and then to rejoice that there is something for us. There is an answer for us, an answer for our sin. There is something that can deal with the greatest problem that we face. And this, of course, is all found in Jesus Christ. And so we return to chapter 6, and I want us to read. Well, we'll take time to read from the opening verse. Last month we started a sermon that we hope to finish this morning. So Song of Solomon, chapter 6. Let us read from verse 1 through verse 9. Whether is thy beloved gone, O thou fairest among women? Whether is thy beloved turned aside, that we may seek him with thee? My beloved has gone down into his garden, to the beds of spices, to feed in the gardens, and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He feedeth among the lilies. Thou art beautiful, O my love, as Terza, comely as Jerusalem, terrible as an army with banners. Turn away thine eyes from me, for they have overcome me. Thy hair is as a flock of goats that appear from Gilead. Thy teeth are as a flock of sheep which go up from the washing, whereof every one beareth twins, and there is not one barn among them. As a piece of pomegranate are thy temples within thy locks. There are three score queens and four score concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my undefiled is but one. She is the only one of her mother. She is the choice one of her that bear her. The daughters saw her and blessed her, yea, the queens and the concubines, and they praised her. Amen. I trust the Lord will bless his word and give us the understanding we need as we reflect upon these verses Again, let's bow before the Lord. Our God, we, we can't generate faith ourselves. We need the help of Thy Spirit. And so as we come to the table, we need Thee to give us faith, faith that reaches out and sees not only the elements but beyond them to understand the finished work of Christ and its application to us as sinners. So I pray that even in these moments there would be a building up of our faith, a strengthening of what Thou hast given, that we might this day feast on Christ, feast on Him as a fresh reminder that He is all that we need, that He has by His sacrifice put away our sin. By His condescension, 
He knows all that we need. He understands. He sympathizes. Oh God, we pray, meet the need of everyone. Come, Lord, to those that are most sorrowing in heart. Come to those that are most backslidden in soul. Come, O oh God, to those that are in desperate need of rescuing. Maybe they need it more than they even realize. They don't know that they're walking afar off. They don't know that they're grieving the Lord. O oh God, I even turn that prayer upon myself. Perhaps, O oh God, there are things in my life that yet grieve thee that need to be dealt with. I'm so thankful that there's a remedy. There is forgiveness. There is redemption in Christ. And so, preacher and hearer, we all run to the same cross work. God, bless us today. Give the Holy Ghost. Cause this word to be preached in power and fitting for the season. And may Christ be evidently preeminent in every utterance. We pray in his precious name. Amen. I've been reading over the past week, again through the early chapters of Genesis, and just pondering and meditating upon those tremendous themes that really lay the foundation for the rest of man's existence. Why is it that we go through the things that we go through? Why is it that we face the sufferings that we have to endure? Why is it that we are constantly experiencing a sense of battle in our existence. It's all found in the early chapters of Genesis. And in a certain sense, it was inevitable, really, we might say, that Satan would come and turn his attention upon humanity. He would launch an assault upon man in the garden. Given that he could not face God and win, he then turns to the object of the Lord's affection, his people, and turns his eyes to Adam and Eve and ponders in his own subtle fashion and deceptive way, how he might destroy the object of the Lord's love. And so you read, you read him coming along, slithering, as it were, in a certain fashion into the presence of where they were, coming in with such subtlety, walking into their presence, and beginning to time and tailor his attack in such a fashion that he deemed would be most successful. It's not my desire to dwell on that, but reading those verses again just in the past few days has been just really illuminating as to everything we face. Satan is everything that you're dealing with in terms of his attack and his torment and his torture and his temptation upon your soul is all outlined for you there in Genesis chapter 3. Your struggle is there. Your difficulty is there. Your battle is there. And nothing really, in one sense, has changed. But the Lord comes, even after the fall, with such words of hope. In Genesis 3, 15, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And there is in that language a note of tremendous victory. What the Lord has promised to his people amidst their great affliction of sin and the promise and assurance of death upon rebellion against the Lord, there is in these words all that we need to encourage us. It tells us of the incarnation of Christ, the seed of the woman. One will come 
bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh, and there will be a tremendous battle that will ensue. Christ will suffer. Thou shalt bruise his heel, it says, indicating the afflictions of the evil one, his torments, his, his sin working into the world, his, his temptations influencing man, his, his corruptions so deceiving man that he is brought into death and all the sufferings thereof. And so Christ himself will have to bear that curse. He will have to suffer what we deserve. And in that sense, there will be the bruising of his heel. But there is a victory. There is a victory. It shall bruise thy head. Christ will have the ultimate victory. He will inflict a wound upon the enemy that will end his career of deception and lies and death. This is the hope that we have. And the Song of Solomon is a book that brings us into the felt experience that moves the Son of God to do this great work. Why? Why engage? Why take on our nature? Why suffer? Why be the surety of His people? Why stand as the substitution for them? Why die a vicarious death? Why? And In this book of Song of Solomon, we see that there is a love that He has for them, a love that moves Him, a love that drives Him, a love that propels Him to do everything necessary to rescue us. And we sit at this table, when we remember, we, we have to contemplate this is all divine intervention. We have not earned the least of this. Everything is a gift. And it's not just that kind of gift that is presented and you take it and there's no emotional attachment, there's no connection, kind of like people who, who give to charitable causes, but, but they give out of a sense of guilt, or you just caught them in the right moment, and they feel somewhat obligated to give something to it, but there's no emotional attachment, there's no concern, there's no ongoing looking into the cause, whether there are ongoing needs. They kind of forget about it once the dollars are passed. They set it aside, there's no interest. That is not the exchange that takes place between the Lord and His people. So as we return to verses 4 through 9, what we considered last month was Christ's utmost admiration for the church. Christ's utmost admiration for the church. And this is part two. What we noted last time was just the first point. He admires what she proclaims. And that is in verse 4. Thou art beautiful, O my love, as Terza, comely as Jerusalem, terrible as an army with banners. There is here, just to refresh your memory, the proclamation of her character. She is beautiful. Thou art beautiful. Beautiful as Terza, comely as Jerusalem. These cities that were given favorable situations that people would look upon and say, what a favorable sight. How favored are those that inhabit those places. This is the circumstances of the church she has this beauty. She also is peaceful. Jerusalem is the foundation of peace. She is also terrible, terrible as an army with banners. In this fashion, not in conflict with her beauty, is the reality that the church has a power and an influence that is unrelenting in the world. She has a certain terribleness about her. 
against all her foes, against all her enemies, she continues resolved. She is carrying on against every attack, every enemy, every difficulty. And we turn to Exodus 1 just to see the historical narrative of the children of Israel and their afflictions in Egypt, and yet they would multiply and multiply that the worst the enemy could bring against them could, could not prevail against them. And then learning from the New Testament that we have weapons. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty through God. And sometimes, sometimes I wonder, do we really understand that the weapons that the Lord has given to us are actually mighty through God? Do we believe, do we really believe that as the church militant, the church on earth, that God has equipped us sufficiently to deal with what we're facing in this generation? And I, 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 I don't care that I find myself being repetitious on this point because I think it needs to be bedded into your soul because every week, every single week, you leave this place, you go into the world, you see the headlines, and you, you wonder what direction is the world going and is there any hope? So you come into this month particularly and you see the assault. Your language is as if the, the, these people are, 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 are attacked and sidelined, and they're, they're, they're the object of, of great affliction. And yet every national, multinational corporation, every influential corporation in America, almost every single one of them stands with them. But not one, hardly one, will stand for the church, for those things that are related in the Word of God. This is how twisted, this is how twisted things get. That we call evil good and good evil. And the church, amidst her suffering, feels what it is to be truly outcast. And the danger in that is that we imagine we have no weapons to deal with it. That there's no answer for it. That we just have to be subjected to this ongoing assault and so we'll, in some fashion, feel. Our prayer is, as I reminded you recently, thy kingdom come. Not thy kingdom will be extinguished, or thy kingdom will be blotted out, or thy kingdom must be stalled, or thy kingdom has to be shelled for a time. No, thy kingdom come. So he admires what she proclaims. Beauty, peace, her terribleness. There's not only the proclamation of her character, but there's also the proclamation of his cross as an army with banners. Yes, she has a message. Church, get about the business of holding up the banner. Preach the cross. Continue to tell sinners their need of Christ. Don't even feel the need to get into all their philosophy and all the things that they believe. And imagine I need to have an answer for every objection. You don't. Just keep preaching the cross and living out the effect of the cross in your life. The joy that it gives you amidst your affliction. The smile you have when everything seems to be against you. Still you know, I'm beloved of the Lord. And they don't understand it. So as they watch your life and see you traverse and try to understand, they will, 
they will have their very philosophical views fall apart in the face of you living out your faith. And that's what's going to happen, actually. That is what, at least our children, the Lord tarries, I would imagine our children, maybe our children's children, will see the caving in of the present philosophies. It will devour itself. And it will fall apart. And what will be left again is the truth of the gospel, which we trust that men en masse will return to and seek the Lord. But we must keep proclaiming, must keep telling about Jesus Christ. We come then to the second and the third point this morning. Not only that he admires what she proclaims, but he admires how she prays. He admires how she prays. Here the Lord speaks on in verse 5, Turn away thine eyes from me, for they have overcome me. Thy hair is as a flock of goats that appear from Gilead. Thy teeth are as a flock of sheep which go up from the washing, whereof every one beareth twins, and there is not one barn among them. As a piece of pomegranate are thy temples within thy locks. Now, I've said he admires how she prays. Well, in the first point, we note here that her appearance plays a part. And I'm not going to remark too much on this because the language, much of the language of verses 5 through 7, we have dealt with already back in chapter 4. It's word for word almost what he said about her, what he described her as having and how he looked upon her, the opening three verses of chapter 4. So I'm not going to go over all of that again except to say and ask the question, well, why repeat it? Why repeat the exact same language that her hair is as a flock of goats that appear from Gilead and so on? Why say all of this again? And I can't say for certain, but I do know this. Between that first record of her beauty and her co- him commenting on her beauty and this record, she has fallen. She has, she has gone away. Her heart had grown cold. You go back to chapter 5 just to refresh your mind in verse 3. I have put off my coat, how shall I put it on? I have washed my feet, how shall I defile him? Here, here she is resisting the invitation to have fellowship with him. And so he then goes away. Verse 6, I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had withdrawn himself and was gone. My soul failed when he spake. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. And so between these remarks... Looking at her beauty in this fashion, using the exact same language, there has been a period of failure, of backsliding, of coldness of heart, of indifference to the bridegroom. And so what we learn from this, at least in part, is that the Lord continues to have the same affection for her. And so we note two things. First, because our appearance to him is based on his righteousness, our acceptance is undeniable. Because our appearance to him is based on his righteousness, our acceptance is undeniable. He comes back with the same language, accepting her, still reflecting the same love for her, arguing the cause that as she is clothed with a righteousness that is not her own, as she is credited with a beauty given to her, so then his love endures. So Christian, you come to the table, and maybe this morning you're not quite on the mountaintop as you were last month, 
and you're not feeling that love toward Christ as you felt in bygone times, and you're wondering, you're wondering, am I accepted? Should I let the elements pass me by today? Should I not participate because my love somewhat seems a little dim, and my affections somewhat seem to not be up to par and up to snuff? Should I therefore not participate? And certainly there are times where we ought not, but not based upon not based upon a penitent desire to rectify where you are with the Lord. If there is that longing of soul, Lord, will you receive me again? Will you hear me again? Will you have me again? The answer is always, undeniably, unquestionably, yes. Yes, your beauty is not your own. Your appeal to me is not based on your works. It's not on your merit. You're not coming to the table having done very well this week, and therefore I will give you, as it were, a pat on the back, and you've earned the right to take these elements. No, never. It is always, it's always by faith, embracing the righteousness of Christ and understanding that my presence before Him and His love towards me is in part looking upon what He has accomplished given freely to me. So Christian, what are you looking to? What are you looking to? To how you've fared in the past week or in the past month even. And you're wondering, what would the Lord's remarks be to my appearance? Well, because your appearance to Him in a legal fashion is based on His righteousness, Your acceptance is undeniable, but also because our appearance to Him is based on His righteousness, His love for us is unalterable. And in stating the same language, the Lord underlines that there's no change. My love hasn't changed for you. It doesn't ebb and flow like yours. No, I say the same thing. So, her appearance plays a part as she prays. As we do, as we come before the Lord and pray. What's the merit? What's the ground? Upon what do I fellowship with the Lord? It is my appearance that is the imputed righteousness of Christ allowing me to pray freely every day at all times, even even when my heart may have grown somewhat cold. But I want to spend more time in considering her affection. Her affection plays a part as well. And at the beginning of verse 5, you have something that is not found in chapter 4. Turn away thine eyes from me, for they have overcome me. And this this is what I'm taking as really the a reflection of the fellowship or the prayers of the church toward Christ. And he, has said, he says, Turn away thine eyes from me, for they have overcome me. Now, this is unbelievable language. That Christ would say, Turn away your eyes from me. Stop looking in my direction, for you're overcoming me. Or we might say, you're overwhelming me. You try to understand that. Try to take that in. Try to process the Lord saying to you, your look at me is overwhelming.
There are a number of ways, no doubt, that this could be pondered, but since the eye is the organ of faith, as it were, that Scripture uses the eye as that which we behold things with, even those things unseen by the eye, I saw then really this as her, her looking to the Lord, calling upon Him, seeking Him in such a fashion that He finds overwhelming. That it is taking Him aback, as it were. Now, all of this is just human language. None of this is exact and real. It's not like the Lord Himself can be overwhelmed or overcome. But he condescends to help us understand and to invite, to invite us to do what we ought to do. It's like when the Lord said he was going to destroy Nineveh. I'm going to destroy Nineveh. But then he doesn't. Why didn't he? He said he was going to do it. Well, he didn't because that message, that message was, was necessary to garner the response that was desired, which was the repentance. And so the Lord uses language at times to help us. And so when he speaks in language like this, that I am overwhelmed by your look, he is inviting us to, to engage in activity like this. And when I read this, all I could think about was, was that scene with Jacob Turn to Genesis 32. Genesis chapter 32. Because in one sense, here we have the Lord overcome. And maybe the example from Scripture is better than me trying to explain it. And so in Genesis 32, Jacob is making his way. He's returning back from his time with Laban. And he, of course, has the prospect of, of having to face Esau which is not a helpful prospect at all. He's, 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 in a sense, inwardly petrified, but outwardly trying to hold it together and pragmatically trying to alleviate the risks involved by splitting up every, in, into two parties, one at the front, at the back, and so on and so forth, trying to mitigate the risk of going to face Esau. And so you see his planning in the early verses and verse 6 through 8 particularly, the messengers come and they tell him that Esau is coming to meet you and so on. So he makes his plan. But then verse 9, he does what every believer ought to do. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord which saidst unto me, return unto thy country and to thy kindred and I will deal well with thee. You see what he's doing? You see what he's doing? He is coming on the knowledge that this is the same God that dealt mercifully with those who have gone before me. He is coming with an understanding that God doesn't change. That as he dealt mercifully with previous generations, he is trusting that he will continue to show mercy in this present time at this present hour. Congregation, get that into your heart. That's why you read history. That's why you get yourself acquainted with revival. Because you see generations... You see fathers in the church that have seen the outpouring of God's Spirit and a turning around in difficult days. And you learn to pray, God, you're the same. You are the same. 
that the tragedy of England in the 18th century was turned about by the preaching of the gospel. And so you begin to appeal. As things were so bad then, and you showed mercy, so they're bad now, show mercy. And that's what he's doing. God had made promises to his fathers. He is appealing that God is consistent with his word. And then particularly to him, he has told him to return and he will deal well with him. So he's reminding the Lord of his own word. Then, then, then he comes as, as someone that God had favored, the most favored individual living upon the planet. What does he say? I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truths which thou hast showed unto thy servant. For with my staff I passed over this Jordan, and now I am become two bands. Here's humility. If the church is to know divine intervention, she must be humble. Let me state it then. In all that you see in the denigration of our society, don't don't make remarks based upon a platform of your own pride, not recognizing that you only are what you are by the grace of God. Be careful as you engage, especially at this particular time, be careful how you engage. Always remember, I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth. Yes, you have received mercy. You have received truth. Many others haven't. But he prays, deliver me, verse 11, I pray thee from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him as he will come and smite me and the mother with the children. Oh, are there not Esau's around every corner right now? Yes, they're threatening to destroy everything you own, all that's precious to you. Esau lives beside you. Esau is in charge of the country in which you live. Esau, who wants to destroy the most valuable thing God has given you. Your wives and your children. And in one sense, we might say we should fear them. They may come and smite us. Verse 12 And thou says, I will surely do thee good. Make thy seed as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. And he lodged there that same night, so on. Then you come down to verse 24. Jacob was left alone. And though wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go, for the day breaketh. And he said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. And he said unto him, What is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince hast thou power with God and with men, and hast prevailed. Now I want you just to add a little more to this narrative that is given. Turn to Hosea chapter 12. Hosea chapter 12. Because Hosea gives us a little detail that helps fill in some of what occurred here. Hosea 12. 
verse 3. He took his brother by the heel in the womb. This is Jacob. By his strength he had power with God. Yea, he had power over the angel and prevailed. He wept and made supplication unto him. Now this is being told for a particular purpose. You can see that purpose in verse 6. Therefore turn thou to thy God. Keep mercy and judgment and wait on thy God continually. And what the Lord is telling his people here in Hosea is, do as Jacob did. What did Jacob do? He prayed. He wrestled with the angel and he had power over the angel and prevailed. He wept and made supplication unto him. He wept. Now, beloved, that is something that is far too infrequent in our fellowship and in our prayers with the Lord, weeping. We don't sob. We have all the reasons to sob. Esau's going to destroy us. And Jacob's not just praying and wrestling with the angel in some stoic fashion. He is weeping. The life of his family depends on the favor of God and the protection of God. And he is sobbing, sobbing tears, crying out. And he will not let the angel go until he is assured that there's protection from God. And so he wrestles and he wrestles and he wrestles and he is touched. And I believe, as it were, the Lord, the Lord's wrestling with him. In one hand, he is, he is pressing against him. With the other hand, he's upholding him, sustaining Jacob. Yes, that's when you know you're getting places in prayer, when you know that it seems as if God himself is upholding you in prayer. When as you're sustained with times and seasons of fasting and prayer and you're waiting on God, and as if God himself is sustaining you along, carrying you through, and you wrestle on, and the moments pass and the hours pass, and God's keeping you, and you're sobbing and you're waiting and you're crying, that, that is the kind of prayer that Jacob engaged in, and that is the need of this hour. And the language, this, is, this, is, this was the passage I thought when I, that the Lord is saying, as it were, turn your eyes away from me. You've overcome me. It is when the church gets a hold of the promises of God and is so desperate for divine intervention, she will not let the Lord go until she's blessed. The Lord says, you've overcome me. Let me go. Let me go. Is that not the language? Let me go. But we'll not. We will not let go. And as we are overwhelmed with fear, facing the impossibility of our circumstances, We keep laying hold on the Lord until He is overwhelmed by our importunity. Did our Lord Jesus not teach the very same? That the widow who comes to the unjust judge and pleads her cause, and He has no interest in her, none, but for her constant coming, for her prevailing. He was overcome by her. And yet we don't come to an unjust judge, nor are we widows without connections. We come to a father 
one who is ours, who has given us a son and given us ground so that when we pray, it's not like the unjust judge who says, listen, woman, you have nothing to do with me. Your affairs are your own. I have no responsibility over you. Go your way. Well, that's not, that is not how we come to the Lord. How much more then can we be assured that the Lord will hear us, His people, His elect, who cry unto Him day and night? That's the teaching of the Lord. Now, we will either learn this or the succeeding generation will learn it. At some point, there is always a generation that learns this. And our question for this morning is, will I learn it? You have some matter, some of you, some of you I know, others no doubt, matters I'm not privy to. You have impossibilities in your mind right now. If you think about this, you think of your Jacob Esau experience, you're facing someone who could destroy you, wipe you out. There's something equivalent to that that is pressing upon you that you fear. What are you doing about it? What are you doing about it? The Lord, through history, has in wonderful seasons, as it were, said to his people, turn away thine eyes from me, for they have overcome me. I'll give you what you want. You've tarried in Jerusalem, power comes from on high. There's Peter in the prison, in the prison, <laughs> chained, guarded. It's impossible. But prayer was made of the church unto God for him. Prayer was made of the church unto God for him. There they were, night and day, begging God to intervene. They didn't know how. Maybe some of them were praying, Lord, help them to die an honorable death. Help them not to recant. Help them to stand firm. And others, no doubt, praying for his deliverance. But even among them, there were some who didn't believe. But, but the Lord was still overcome. He was overcome because they were looking. The eye of faith was looking. And the Lord, as it were, turned that eyes from me. You, you've overcome me. You keep looking and looking and looking and praying and praying and praying. And you've overcome me. I will respond. And he breaks the bands. He opens the doors. Peter walks out. A free man. He barely even believes it himself. Wonders if it's a vision. But this is how the Lord works. And this is what we need. You remember when the Moabites came against Judah? You remember? And Jehoshaphat's reign. And there's Jehoshaphat. He doesn't know what to do. In fact, we'll just turn there. Just 
Refresh your mind and just read some of the verses of Second Chronicles 20. Second Chronicles 20. Christians, you sit at the table today, you need to be refreshed in what the Lord is able to do for you. What the Lord is able to do for us. You need to be refreshed. You need your vision to be expanded. You need your heart to swell. You need your love to increase. You need your burden to drive you to Christ. And to begin, to begin afresh, to start today afresh in this business of trying to prevail against the Lord in prayer, as it were, turning His eyes, overcoming Him, causing Him to condescend, to intervene and do the miraculous on your behalf. So you have this news that comes to Jehoshaphat at the beginning of chapter 20 of Second Chronicles. Verse 2, there came some that told Jehoshaphat, saying, There cometh a great multitude against thee, Verse 3, Jehoshaphat feared. Again, he's just like Jacob. (laughs) The leaders don't have all the answers, beloved. They don't. The power is not in the leadership. The power is not in the elders or the father or the mother or in the political leaders. The answer is not there. If you're thinking the answer is there, And if you like to point the finger and blame on political things or ecclesiastical things at leadership, the answer isn't there. It never has been. Jehoshaphat feared. Here's good leadership. He set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed the fast throughout all Judah. And Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord. Even out of all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. This, if we don't see this happen in America, in the UK, in the West, across the world, if we don't see this, every nightmare you can envisage will come to pass. It will. And I sit, you've no idea how many times I sit and I ponder, I ponder, I consider, I, I muse on what, what is the what is a leader? What's it calling me to? How do I lead like Jehoshaphat here? What, what will make the difference? And every time I come back, I come back to the same thing. It will come as we learn. Our only answer is on our faces before the Lord. How can we cultivate seasons where we just wait and we wait and we wait for the Lord to intervene? You young men in ministry, think about ministry. You need to get a hold of this because you'll do nothing. You will accomplish nothing of any meaning. And parents, the same thing. Until you learn to get before the Lord, wait before the Lord, set yourself to seek the Lord, and then you have it. Where is it? Verse 12. As he prays, and you can read it in your own time, but verse 12 is the most significant. O our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us. Neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. There it is. There it is. This, this, is, why, this is why the Lord comes in seasons and says, Turn your eyes away from me. You have overcome me. Your eyes are looking. It's like all the eyes of the church, all the needs, all the burdens. There's... there's There's this massive concern. Hannah, for example. Hannah's looking. She won't let go. She keeps looking. And the Lord is overcome. And opens up the womb. 
Yes, there are these times where the Lord has overcome. Overcome because we've sought him. Sought him with all of our might. Sought him with every ounce of our being. It's a a strange text, verse 5. It really is. Turn away thine eyes from me, for they have overcome me. They're overwhelming me. But just to note, very quickly, the third point. He admires her peculiarly. He admires her peculiarly. Look at verse 8 and 9. There are threescore queens and fourscore concubines and virgins without number. Some look at this and they wonder, are these various parts and aspects of the church, the church in her various expressions of maturity and so on. But I'm inclined again to see this as the world. And there's all these options, as it were. There's all, all this that the Lord could set us love upon. But verse 9, my dove, my undefiled is but one. She is the only one of her mother. She is the choice one of her that bear her. The daughters saw her and blessed her. Yea, the queens and the concubines, and they praised her. My dove, my undefiled is but one. The Lord has time for no other. This is, this is the language of, of the New Testament. It is. John 13, 17. When he writes, or whenever he prays, and as the record is given by John, it's very exclusive. John 17, 2. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. There's a a particular number that he's concerned about. Verse 9, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. Verse 11, I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. Verse 24, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me Be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. So, here we have one one object of the Lord's particular love. My dove, my undefiled, is but one. She is his only holy bride, my undefiled. That's the church, washed in Redeemer's blood. Just one, just one, made clean by the blood of the Lamb, fit to sit at this table and have communion with him. She's not only the only holy bride, she is is the only existing bride, The only one of her mother. That's to say, it's as if there's no other existing. She is exclusively mine. There's no one else. And the world notices it. The world can see it. The daughter saw her and blessed her. Yeah, the queens and the concubines, and they praised her. The world sees the favored place of the church. At times. 
At this time, they see it. They see it here. They don't always see it, but they do sometimes. They do. Sometimes the world sees the favored position of the church. Psalm 126 tells us about that. When the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. Then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Then said they among the heathen, the Lord hath done great things for them. <laughs> this has happened. This can happen again. Now, of course, there will be a an eschatological fulfillment of it. Certainly there'll be some expression of it at the very end, at the last, when, when the church is all gathered unto Christ publicly before everyone who's ever lived. And they will recognize that the Lord hath done great things for them. But it should happen now. It should happen. It can happen now. When the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion. So they say, the Lord hath done great things for us, whereof we are glad. Turn again our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Do it again, Lord. The psalmist in Psalm 126 is looking back just like we look back. There were seasons of favor when even the world recognized the beauty and the distinction of the church. Yes, when the kings of the earth are beginning to favor her, become nursing fathers and mothers to the church, recognizing her place in the world, her distinctive place in the world, and favoring her. This has happened. Oh, that the Lord would do it again. We are a favored people. The Lord hath done great things for us. The Lord hath done great things for you, Christian. You can sit at this table this morning. You can you can sit and you can feast afresh on the cross and you can we were remarking on it recently you can start again you can that's what Christ gives you permission to do to start again to look at months maybe even years of failure of not laying hold not overcoming him with your affection toward him, with your appeal to him, he can, he does give fresh starts. This has been the history of the church. It's been the history of believers where they have been free to start again. Where they know again, I just, I turn again to that bleeding lamb and find in him all I need for all my sin. And he washes it away. And the sweet renewing of the Spirit of God, the coming down of the Spirit that can restore the years that the locust hath eaten. And cause you to know sweet fellowship with the Lord that, that seems this morning as only a distant memory. That you remember those times, you remember those occasions when, when you would prevail before the Lord and it would seem as if you, you overcame Him. Those testimonies of experience when you get up from the place of prayer and you say, the Lord has heard. The Lord has heard. You've seen the cloud the size of a man's hand and you know, you know it's on the way. Oh, how sweet are those experiences. And yet, how seldom do we know them today? How seldom do we know them today? It's like amidst our 
material prosperity. We're quite happily careering into glory with all our stuff, but no experience of knowing God and seeing divine intervention and seeing the armies of the enemy quelled and turned on their heels by a divine act of God. And Jehoshaphat says, I don't have the answers. But my eyes are upon thee, Lord. When Jacob says, I'll not let thee go because you're the only answer. I can't deal with Esau. And the Lord answers. So there you are. There you are dealing with wayward children, dealing with maybe even physical matters, dealing with all sorts of things. Oh, that you would come. Oh, that we, even as a church, would see the Lord saying to us, Turn away thine eyes from me, for they have overcome me. Oh, the Lord. Oh, the Lord's able to do it. The church is his only undefiled. His bride is but one. The world can never, the world can never turn to him. They can never get him to hear what they have to say. But we can. Let's pray. God, we pray for help. We have to say, neither know we what to do. Help us to have our eyes on Thee. Thou art looking for it, Lord. I believe it. I believe Thou art looking for this more than everything else. Thou art looking for us to turn to Thee in desperation that we might be as the Canaanite-ish woman who would not be turned aside as she besought the Lord for her daughter. For that man with the son that was possessed and was off thrown into the fire, he wouldn't go away, he wouldn't leave the Lord until he had the answer. And the Lord was overcome. Said to that woman, I have not found so great faith. Great faith, the eyes that will the eyes that will not let go. As Jacob of old, those eyes of faith that will not let go until we know blessing from the Lord. God, I pray that we as a people would learn to overcome thee, to have thee turn and show mercy how we need it. Help us, Lord, prepare our hearts further as we sing and sit at this table. We ask in Jesus' name.